Thanks for the helpful introduction. We are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. We're in our second of three part series on this issue of biblical self-defense. I started two weeks ago, Pastor Jeff preached on sanctification last week, which is exactly what we're talking about. We'll get into that more in a moment. This issue is an issue of sanctification. We used to live in a country... Uh, where every one of our original um, states had laws requiring each and every citizen to own a gun, practice with the gun, and bring it to church. Uh, in fact, I can't remember which colony it was, but they would actually go to your home and check and make sure that your peace was in working order, and if it wasn't, they'd fine you. Today, they'd go into your home to see if you have a gun and take it. Back then, if you didn't, you'd be in trouble. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, wrote, a strong body makes the mind strong. He's writing to a friend talking about exercise. And he says, so a strong body makes the mind strong. As to the kind of exercise, I advise carrying a gun. While carrying a gun gives some moderate exercise to the body, it gives boldness, enterprise, and independence of mind. Games played with the ball and others of this nature are too violent for the body and stamp no character on the mind. Therefore, let, or therefore, let your gun, therefore, be your constant companion on your walks. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? In Massachusetts in 1644, the state required every free man or other inhabitant of this colony to provide himself and each under his roof, wife and children, a sufficient musket, two pounds of powder, and ten pounds of bullets. Failure to comply with this law was punishable with a fine equal to a day's wage. A former cowboy and Confederate soldier, Reverend Andrew Jackson Potter, preached among the roughest towns of the western frontier. He would ascend the pulpit, unstrack his gun belt, lay his two revolvers across the pulpit, and set to preaching. (laughs) Uh, I take it you haven't seen that in any of the churches you've ever been a part of. But this sermon series isn't about Uh, what our founding fathers or others uh, thought about the right to bear, have and bear arms. Um, The reason is, is because even if our country didn't have a second amendment, we would still have the right to have and bear arms. That's what we're talking about. The right to have and bear arms isn't a right given by man. It's first and foremost a right and duty given by God, and that's what we're talking about. So if you were here two weeks ago, you heard the biblical reasoning for that. I'll go through it again once in a moment. Um, The reason our Constitution states in the Second Amendment that we have a right to bear arms is because it's a right given by our Creator first. So our founding fathers didn't come up with that just because they thought it was a good idea. They came up with it because of their careful reading of Scripture. So what I want to do is take the, these three sermons, this is the second one, to explain that right, that duty. That's what we're doing. If you are a visitor with us, this might seem like a strange uh, sermon series. Typically you don't hear these things preached on. But it's a big deal in our country. And I'll get into that in a moment. So I beg your pardon and encourage you to to listen carefully to this 
This is really about love. And so just I'll start with that and just stick with me if you would. Let me read this text, pray, and then I just want to set this concept within the wider uh, teaching of Scripture. So here's Matthew 5, 39. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. Let's pray. Your word, Holy Father, is worth far more than even the purest of gold. So teach us to, by your spirit, value your holy and eternal word far above all things. Give us understanding that we might know and live your testimonies for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So God created us in his image. In Genesis 1 and 2, there was no need uh, for anything like self-defense. Matthew 5.39 had no use before Genesis 3. There was no conflict. There was no ungodly arguing or fighting. There was no threat to life. Nothing. And we know that it'll be like that at the end. That there will be a day when a child can play by the den of a deadly cobra. Because there'll be no more warfare. There'll be no no enmity. All of the swords will be turned into instruments for work. There'll be no more need for this kind of thing. But we don't live in that world now. We live in Genesis 3 now. And so the reason for the teaching in the Bible on the right and duties to self-protection, the protection of others, even violently, is because we live in a violent world. Um, We live in a world where the, the, the second greatest sin in the Bible was a brother murdering another brother in cold, premeditated blood. And if you will, Abel might have been glad to have a gun then. That's what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about a fallen world where violence happens. We're talking about a world where wickedness happens, where people come to take life and to harm it. Now, this isn't the gospel in a sense, the simple gospel uh, isn't that your strength, your weaponry can save you. The simple gospel is we are fallen sinners created by a holy God, worthy of eternal punishment, and yet God in unthinkable mercy and love sent his only son because of our violence And he took all of our sin upon him and suffered the violence due us for our sin, suffered and bled and died, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, where all who hope in him have eternal life. So guns don't save, only Jesus can save. And yet being saved ones, what does it look like for you in regards to those you live with or in regards to those in your church or your workplace or in your community? What does love look like there? And so these sermons are about sanctification. Last week, Pastor Jeff preached on sanctification as growing incrementally, progressively, I think was the word he used, progressively over time. And we define sanctification by the word love. Love God all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so these sermons are about how to love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the ways in Scripture to love your neighbor as yourself is to be willing to do harm to somebody else who would do them harm. It would be to protect those who uh, might suffer 
injustice, injustice um, to somebody else. Where would we get such a thing from? Where would we get such a thing from? So reviewing two weeks ago, very simply, God created us in his image and declares that all unending, unlawfully of human life is to be dealt with by the ending of the life of that who would do them harm. So in Genesis 9, we read that if somebody sheds the blood of a human, by human will that person's blood be shed. So within the command, thou shalt not murder, is the positive of thou shalt protect life. And thou shalt take the life of someone who would end the life of another. We see this most clearly, if you wanted the clearest text, it would be Exodus 22, 2 and 3. I looked at it in depth two Sundays ago, so it's on the website if you'd like to go and read that. The context is somebody breaking into your home at night, and if you were to end the life of the home, the person breaking into your home, you have no guilt, you're free, you did what was right. And so you are, uh, you, you have a right and a duty to protect yourself and the lives of those around you with lethal force if somebody is threatening your life or the life of another. So, so that, that's the first sermon in a nutshell. Again, I took 40 minutes or so to do what I just did in two. And so if you'd like more information, you can look at that there. Uh, and as I promised in the first sermon, is that this second sermon that would then address your questions and objections. Um, or the questions and objections that I would think are most frequently raised in a Christian church setting. So I'm not going to address objections from um, the world on this. I think those are fairly easily dealt with. Uh, But I want to address Christians who might disagree with what I've just said and address those questions and concerns um, biblically. Before I do that, after two weeks ago's sermon, probably the question I got Mostly because at the end of the sermon two weeks ago, I, I just exhorted the men. I, I talked directly to the men for the last 10, 15 minutes of the sermon, talking about your duty as men to provide for the protection of yourself and your loved ones. And of course, then the question I got, well, are you saying women shouldn't be armed? Uh, can I lovingly smack your right cheek here and trust that you'll turn the left? If I say something positively about someone, that doesn't mean I'm assuming the negative about the other. That is a rather, um, uh, I don't know what word to use here, but not a good way to listen. Um, and, and so I'd encourage you to be a little bit more patient on that. I didn't say women shouldn't be armed. I think they should. They should. They should get all of the training. In fact, my wife and I took uh, concealed carry training, and when we were out shooting, there was a bunch of us from Pine Grove. If I remember, I think she outshot everybody, which gave me a, a little more motivation to love her better. Um, yeah, and so we do this in church, though. If I were to preach a positive sermon about hymns, the first question I would get is, are you saying contemporary worship sermons are bad? No. Um, so when I say it's a man's God-given and biblical duty to arm himself and protect his loved one, I, I'm not saying women should. In fact, but, but we know as men, 
it would be completely unmanly and dishonorably that when you heard a noise in the middle of the night to nudge your wife and say, would you go check on that? We, we all get it. Um, it would be wrong. Or if we put the protection of our church and, and, and said, men, you're not allowed to carry guns. You're too violent. We want all the women to carry guns here. And if somebody came in, all the men should duck and all the women should go towards them. We know how really abhorrent that would be. It's gross. So that's why I urged the men uh, two times ago. So I'll get into this more next week on kind of applying this teaching as far as men and women. Uh, But there, that answers that. Um, Let me see where I want to go. Let's go to our first objection. The first objection that I have heard Christians say about this is just, just trust God. If you just trust God, then you don't need to worry about protecting yourself. If you just trust God, then you, sh- you don't need guns. And so this is this error of trusting God means human passivity. That's the more general, common, just let go and let God. There's no need for careful planning. There's no need for training. There's no need for provision of one self-defense or anything else. If God is sovereign, then just trust him and you don't have to do anything. But that really is just carnal reasoning. It's profoundly unbiblical. The Bible, in fact, teaches something completely opposite. In the sermon uh, two weeks ago, I I looked at Nehemiah 4. Turn there quickly with me, if you would. Uh, So if you're uh, looking towards about the middle of your Bible and find the book of Psalms, Nehemiah, I think, is two books, three books to the left of that. Um, So Nehemiah 4. The situation in Nehemiah 4 is just what we're talking about here. God's people, so the people of faith, have been uh, granted to return back to the city, to their city, and rebuild it. And there are those violently threatening them. Uh, Let's see. We see in verse 7 and 8, these men plotting in verse 8 to come and fight and to cause confusion. So you have people, they're aware of violent um, attack imminent. And in verse 9, it says, we prayed to our God. Now, those who take part in the air of just trust God would say, that's all. That's it. Anything beyond that is due to unbelief, lack of faith. So just trust God. Just pray and that's it. But look at what he does. We prayed. We set a guard as protection against them day and night. So good. They prayed first. That's right. Second, they set a guard. Verse 13, we see that that guard was armed. Swords and spears and bows. Right? Or Glocks and ARs and whatever. And so we see here, this is held up as an example of wise, godly goodness. They prayed and they took action. There is no incompatibility between trusting God and planning and providing for our protection with weapons. 
the biblical principle is faith does not lead to passivity, but to biblical activity. Faith works. Passivity is the problem in our culture, not the goodness of it. Faith doesn't lead to victimhood. In the New Testament, Paul writes in Philippians 2.12 that you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God works within you both the will and the work for his good pleasure. That is, God's working strengthens and encourages your working. Faith in God strengthens and arm yourself to you taking action. And in this topic, to protect, to arm yourself, to be practiced and ready, like the godly example of Nehemiah, both praying and planning and arming for self-protection. All right, so that answers that first objection. I I think rather clearly. And you could just multiply example upon example upon example of this. The second objection deals with our text. And this is probably the one most frequently used. That is, there are Christians, churches, whole denominations um, that think any kind of violence, any kind of arming yourself or involvement is wrong in this and that, and that we should be completely a pacifist. And this would be the text that they would most turn to. So I, let me read it again, Matthew 5, 39. I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the the other also. Or you could use Romans 12, 17, and 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Can I say, I think this error is very silly and easily dismissed. What is this text or these texts talking about? Does this have anything to do with self-defense? What does it have to do with? Revenge. And what we're talking about in these sermons is, is a world away from revenge. It's nothing to do with revenge. We're not talking about plotting the harm of somebody who did you harm and carrying out. That's evil. We are talking about the careful, wise provision of protection, not hating somebody else who did something wrong to you and you're going to get them. That's what these texts are addressing. This isn't addressing self-protection at all. It's, it's, not, it's not what it's talking about at all. If someone harms you and there's no legal recourse, one of the things Christians are taught to do is just leave it to God. He sees the injustice caused you. He sees the unjust words. He sees the financial sin of somebody against you. He sees it. And he will deal with them in a way that will make how you would deal with it pale in comparison. And this should be really helpful to you. You have people who have sinned grievously against you. There's no legal recourse. There's no evidence of it, maybe. Uh, You don't feel like justice is happening. Be patient. God is a just God. Listen to those words in Romans 12. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Listen to this. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We are taught as believers to take comfort in this. The Psalms are filled with God's people singing songs, calling on God to break the teeth of the wicked, to break their bones, that their houses may be childless, that their name stand out forever. And they're to take comfort in this because they're doing violence to God's people and God's people are looking to God to take vengeance on their enemies. So you're to take comfort in that. But that's not what we're talking about in these sermons. We aren't talking about protecting our, uh, these texts aren't talking about self-protection. They're talking about vengeance, revenge. So if an evil man were to come and do harm to you and you weren't ready, you aren't to go after him later. You're to let the civil authorities deal with it. And if they won't, then you're to entrust it to God. But if you are armed at home or here at church or in the workplace and somebody comes to take your life or the life of others, you are biblically, uh, you have a biblical right and duty to end the life of that person without guilt or questions of conscience. What this error does, not only does it rip it from context, but it takes a principle of kindness and makes it the overarching principle by which everything then gets interpreted in life. That is, you take niceness and say that is the only Christian teaching on how to live in this world now. And it's absolutely wrong and does violence to the rest of the Bible. It also pits the New Testament against the Old. One of the things that somebody might say that's really silly is, yeah, that's Exodus 22, but that's in the Old Testament. Oh, really? Is God not the God of all Scripture? Does not Paul the Apostle write in our New Testament letter, all Scripture is breathed out by God? We really do need to get this straight. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. We should never hear a Christian saying, but that's in the Old Testament. Ever. Now, uh, another part of this objection that we also need to talk about is a question that a few of you raised after the sermon two weeks ago. Is what about persecution? What about a missionary out in a place where they know they could be violently opposed? Or what about somebody at an abortion clinic calling men and women to not murder their child and might suffer? What, what about that? Well, I, I, that's where Matthew 5.39 has something to say to us. Insults. And so uh, I have a friend, Joseph Spurgeon, if you want to look him up on the internet. He does a lot of work at abortion clinics. And they get spit on and they get food thrown at them. They've been assaulted physically. Uh, this man is armed. But when he goes to the abortion clinic, he, he's never armed. He knows that by putting himself in that situation that he will likely suffer humiliation and physical violence. And he has counted the cost and he knows in that situation, at least according to his conscience, it, it would not be right to use lethal force or, or any kind of force to defend him. He's going to protect himself, but he's not going to hit back. 
And we might say the same thing, those who are maybe doing mission work in a place where threat could come to life. Now, I'm trying to keep that simple because this could get very complex. Let's say you're on the mission field and your wife or children are with you and you're in your home and it comes under attack. Could you use violent force there? I think the Bible would say yes, but you better think through that very carefully. And there's all kinds of different scenarios that we could raise here, but there is a good question about what about suffering as a Christian? In fact, just before this in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In those cases, we as Christians are never to return evil for evil. Um, Let me give you an example. When we, We moved to North Carolina for me to go to seminary, and we lived in a rather rural area, um, and we had two black sons, and it was difficult. And when we moved into our home, the neighbor next door, like the next day, began building a fence <laughs> on our property. And so we went out and said, hey, what's going on? And um, they lied and said, we got cows, and we don't want them on your property. I had never seen a cow there. So we made some lemonade, and our black sons went out there and gave it to them. I think they had like four or five fence posts in, and they stopped, and three years later had never done it again. I think that's how Christians are supposed to respond to that. I could have sent my big, brawny black sons out there to work them over, right? But that's not how we as Christians handle that stuff. Now, if they had come knocking on our door armed, that's a different thing. All right, so, so that's what Matthew five thirty nine is talking about. We, we aren't here talking about suffering for Christ in these servants main, mainly. We're talking about where our lives are threatened by somebody who would do physical violence to us. The third and final objection I want to talk about is sometimes Christians will say, it's just not your job. It's the job of the police to do this. And then they would uh, turn to Romans 13. So if you would turn with me to Romans 13. So there's a a goodness in this argument. There's a right submission to authority. But again, it misunderstands the context here. I I think this objection can be rather rather easily um, dealt with as well. Romans 13 tells us in in the first four verses, let us be subject to the governing authorities because God has put them in authority. Whoever resists these authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For God's servant, is, for he is God's servant for your good. Here it is. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This is where we as Christians have to think carefully. What does God place the sword in the hands of the state for? It's not protection. What does he place the hand or the sword in the hand of the state for? Punishment. God does not assign 
to the civil sphere the duty to protect us. And, and one of the simple reasons is because they can't. So that's the shooting in Texas that happened a few weeks ago. How long was it before when the gun was pulled and that man's life was ended? How long? Six seconds. Right? There's a saying, right? The police are only minutes away when seconds count. They can't. It's not their duty. It's a physical impossibility. Whose duty is it in Scripture? It's yours. Particularly of men. Let me um, give, I, I, I think it would be one additional and biblical help to the relationship between we as individual citizens and the state or police or government. You, if you've been following the news at all, I've been following what's happening in Virginia. The governor there, um, I don't know if he's put forward legislation, I don't know where he's at, but basically he wants to start taking guns from the citizens of Virginia and, and greatly limiting them. Um, I said at the start of this sermon that our right to have and bear weapons isn't firstly or chiefly or mainly given by the second amendment, but the second amendment is there because God has put it in his holy and eternal word. And so if you want to think about this as layers, your first layer of protection to the right to have and bear weapons for self-protection, hunting, so on, is from God. And then man offers additional layers of protection of God's law for its citizens. That's what the Second Amendment is there. It's a, it's a second human layer of protection to God's uh, right. So if someone were to threaten the Second Amendment, they're threatening God's law, right? And, and, and they shouldn't. It's wrong. So, what are we to do when those who do have authority over us in the government, whether it's federal, state, county, local, try to write laws that go against both the law of our land and the Constitution and God's law? Throughout Christian history, there are three ways that believers are given to resist unlawful attempts by our government to infringe on our God-given rights. There's three and then a fourth. First, the pulpit. The pulpit has always been the place that God has given to discipline those that he's put in authority as in Romans 13. Preachers should preach the word calling on our rulers to do what is right. And then if we have rulers in our church who are going on this nonsense, our duty is to discipline them. To call them out, to call them on their sin, and, and even to remove them from the church if they continue to do it. So one of the reasons that our rights are being infringed is because the church has been cowardly in this. Right? Because you can't talk about politics in the church because the Bible never talks about it. I'm being totally facetious. It's all over the Bible. And so we have a mayor, we have policemen, we have county and, and local, and, and we want our godly people in our church who are serving us and our government to follow Scripture. So first would be the pulpit. Second, we see throughout the Bible that when ungodly laws become to be written that violate our own constitution, 
violate conscience and we are suffering harm, one of the things Christians do is they leave. They, they go to other lands to find safety. You see that throughout Scripture. Christians did it in Acts when persecution arose. They leave. They take the gospel someplace else. Third, if there's no place to go, then we should take up arms and resist defensively. This is why we have America. When George Washington and our founders took up arms against the British, they did it lawfully. What do I mean? The British had a constitution. That constitution forbade taxation without representation in their parliament. The American colonies were not a colony under their parliament. We were a colony under their king. And according to their constitution, only the king had a right to rule us, not their parliament. So when their parliament began writing laws, infringing on our freedom, taxation, removal of weapons, we appealed to the king. The king didn't do anything. So what Americans did then is they began to take up arms defensively, not offensively, to protect the freedom under the constitution that they were under. So this wasn't a rebellion. This was a, or a, a revolution. This was a right rebellion against the civil authority that was taking away their God-given rights according to their own constitution. And so George Washington t- says that the guns are teeth, are uh, liberty's teeth. Right? And the British felt that. And they should have. But there's a fourth layer of protection that the reformers, particular John, particularly John Calvin, says that's very helpful and that we saw in Virginia, going back to that in, in last week. John Calvin taught that when higher levels of government break their own laws and the laws of God, people should turn to the lower levels of government to protect them from the higher levels. It's called the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate. I'd encourage you to read up on it. This doctrine of uh, ledger ma- uh, lesser mas- magistrate says that to resist tyranny from central or federal or state government, you should submit to the local protection, a uh, local government protection. So this is what we're seeing in Virginia. Their wicked governor has taken upon himself to violate our, consci- our constitution and their own state's constitution to deny the right to have and bear arms. The people then have turned to the county governments to protect them. And at this point, 90% of counties in Virginia have declared themselves Second Amendment sanctuary cities, and they say they will refuse to comply with the unjust usurpation of the rights and duties of American citizens. Amen. They're doing exactly what they should do before God. In fact, many of their county sheriffs have threaten to deputize everybody in the county so they can legally tear your guns even if the governor... And we should expect the same from our county and local uh, representatives and um, policemen. So we have policemen in our church, and if our governor were to make a law requiring us to take away our guns and their bosses told them to do it, they shouldn't do it. They shouldn't. Because we trust our local government to protect us from infringements from higher levels. And so as a minister of the gospel, I'd call on our police and our legislators at the city and county government to get ahead on this, right? There's already some counties in our area who have enacted this, and so I believe Oneida should be the next, and the city of Rhinelander should be the next. We don't want to wait till we have to do this. 
you wait till you have to do it, it's too late. All right, so let me close um, with Psalm 144, 1, and, um, and then the gospel. David sings in Psalm 144, 1, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And this is a song. David is singing. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. That's a Christian song. Did you know that? Yeah, why aren't we singing that? Why am I not singing? Because I would spare you. Praising God for training our hands for war and our fingers for battle, and at the end, subduing peoples under him, is godly. Why is it godly? Because David is protecting people. Because David and his valiant men were protecting people. Christianity is not bloodthirsty. Christianity in the sense of self-protection is not taking the offensive. It's about putting ourselves between violence of those who would do it and those who would receive it. That's what Christianity is about. And if you love your neighbor, you would do it. And if you don't, you wouldn't. David used his hands and his weapons to kill bears and lions that were harming his sheep. And then he did the same thing with a giant. And then to the delight of all the little boys, he lopped off his torch and his own sword. I don't think you see that on many of the flannel graphs in Sunday school, unfortunately. And David sang a song about it. Why? Because he was willing to lay down his life for God's people. He was willing to put himself between harm and his people and take up arms to protect them. And isn't that the gospel? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down and suffered the wrath of God, protecting you from it from forever. So what we're talking about here is just simply an outworking of living the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us to receive your word. Give us tenderness towards it, even on very difficult topics like this. Teach us to love our neighbor better in all ways, not only in the self-protection ways. Uh, and God, I pray that you protect us from ungodly, tyrannical encroachments on the rights you have given us. Uh, God, help us to do this with wisdom. Uh, help us to do this carefully. Help us to do it with hearts of love and not of violence or aggression. And yet, God, you say that uh, uh, your kingdom must be taken by the, th the force of violent men. And so, God, help us to be godly in our violence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.